Welcome to Composers On Air, podcast presented by the Lithuanian Music Information Center. I'm your host, True Rozaski. We'll be hearing conversations with living Lithuanian composers who will be giving us deeper insights into their music. Composers On Air is supported by the Lithuanian Council for Culture and the Ministry of Culture of the Republic of Lithuania. I'm sitting on the seventh floor in the terrace of the Brooklyn Academy of Music with Lina Lapelite, composer, a sound artist, a music performer, and a performance artist. She's the winner of the Golden Lion Award of the Venice Art Biennial of 2019. And there is a line around the block of people from all walks of life here to see the performance of The Sun and the Sea. La Pelite traverses between disciplines and explores various forms of performativity. Her works engage the trained and the untrained performers, often in an act of singing through a wide range of genres. Sometimes it's mainstream music, sometimes it's opera, and sometimes she examines issues of displacement, otherness, aging, and gender. I was very happy to be accommodated in her busy schedule just to spend a few moments and discuss her work here in Brooklyn, New York. I wanted to welcome you to this episode of Composers On Air. And we're sitting here at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and your performance of The Sun and the Sea is happening right now. I know it's been happening for quite a while. And I also wanna congratulate you on the success of the piece. I know it's been extremely successful worldwide with the Venice Biennial. And then there was this period of time where it just stopped and the pandemic happened. And now we're back and you're in other parts of the world and it's happening again. And one of the first questions that I was really interested in asking you was how your relationship to the piece has transformed with all of the repetitions and all of the time that it's been played. And how has that felt for you? Well, I think it's a, I feel that every work of mine is like a growing child, you know, you, when it's a baby, it needs more attention and then eventually they grow up, become teenagers and then they become independent creatures. So, so I think it's the same is happening with Sun and Sea as well. Like we put a lot of effort for it to kind of become what it is and now as it gets older or hopefully it does not get older <laughs> actually but as it kind of matures i feel that it's kind of perhaps aiming to become more independent from us like i feel that the singers they know much better what they do now than when they were in venice when they were in lithuania i think there is much more trust in the work itself as we are doing it again and again and and you know, it's, it's, it's a work of three people, so I, I always, I don't actually really like the, the term composer <laughs> because it's, it, I don't just provide score, I work with the singers and for me they are more like a live material, like live instruments where we kind of make things together and then arrive to a certain conclusion or a certain way of sounding 
but sound is not everything as well. So it's like we share the responsibilities with Vaiba, Grenita and Rugila Barjukaita very equally. So it's not a work of, you know, of a composer alone. I think it's a complex piece that kind of a lot of parts are interviewed uh, together. You'll be red as a lobster, and it I will rob you. maturation process of growth and development and you mentioned the performers may have been internalizing the depth of the experience individually and collectively. Are you using a lot of the same performers as you travel the world? Yeah, we do actually and it's mainly because of the fact how much time it consumes to prepare someone new. So we, in Venice, for example, when, because the first of all, the work was done in Lithuania, in Lithuanian language. And then we, when we were choosing the performers, the singers, we did not have that much material. We were kind of choosing the people, the voices, the characters without really knowing what they would do. Like there was this conceptual framework on of the 
opera, operatic work on the beach, which would kind of be related with the climate change, but it was this very perhaps loose idea of what exactly they would have to do, except that they would have to lie down and sing. And then when the people were selected, then we worked together with them to arrive to particular areas, choruses and all this. So then when the work traveled to Venice and there it, we knew it would have to be present for half a year and that's like extremely long time for something live to happen. And so from the very beginning we knew that we would have to work with locals from Venice to be able to do that actually. So then the work was translated by Rimas Ushgiris with whom we also worked very closely together to make the translation happen in such a way that it's actually as if it's written in English. And he was he did an amazing job to, to actually to turn the text in such a way that we kind of we feel that both the original and the translated work are equally well done. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, so then in Venice we worked with local Venetians and then after all the success that work had, we we got a lot of invitations to tour the work and also a lot of invitations actually to remake it in specific locations with the local cast. But then I think we, we were overwhelmed by the amount of work we would have to do to always prepare a new cast and then we decided to make this, yeah, the decision was made that we travel with our singers, which is not so, perhaps, ideologically it's not right. <laughs> But it was this kind of, you know, yeah, perhaps the choice we always take. Do you consume yourself or do you consume the resources? And perhaps that was the latter choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this idea of universality of the experience probably helped a lot in terms of accessibility because of the experience and the topic of the opera. Something that everybody can approach and relate to and similar to why a good comedy show works and a comedian works a room, it's because they choose topics that are relatable to the people. And that relatability as a general opening, accessibility, is I think so important, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the, the kind of, the magic of also Viva's text. So it's, it's not just the topics itself, but the way she puts it in words, I think that makes, yeah, that makes it very relatable. And also, like, there is so much irony and paradoxes in the text. But actually seeing that, I just remember that even though we do have our own cast, like, we have a lot of volunteers who come to the beach as, like, as beachgoers who kind of create this tableau vivant uh, picture where they just kind of do their ordinary beach things. And also seeing that also in New York, we didn't have for three days our cast, the full cast because of the visa issues. So then we did have to work with the local performers and they managed to actually like in one day to learn the material and go on stage and do the premiere. So these things happen and I think we've experienced so much of all these kind of force majeure situations that kind of nothing is surprising us. Okay, let's like just like get someone new. And it's, I mean, and it's actually amazing to get local people involved. It, it makes a big uh, difference. I really don't feel that I can let myself slow down. 
Because my colleagues will look down on me. They'll say I have no strength of will. And I'll become a loser in my own eyes. Exhaustion, 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 exhaustion. I like to say it as a joke. It's like a mammoth, a non-existent creature, gone extinct. Encyclopedias have it. But in life, I think, you never meet. You feel that cultural continuity and connection and Oh definitely. Probably keeps the atmosphere authentic and really really helps the energy levels. I was lucky enough to see the piece last week and experienced that warmth of familiarity of a common experience and at the same time also understanding that there was a lot of individual stories going on simultaneously and this musically speaking reminds me a lot of you know of orchestration of even a fugue element or things that are happening simultaneously as the structures are working together in some way. I was also lucky enough to see Have a Good Day. Uh And I also found exemplification of a common element with the 10 cashiers. And the language was one element. The persistence of the language was another element. The repetitiveness of the experience was extremely present as well. And in The Sun and the Sea, the idea of looping the piece in a day or an evening or how many performances go in a row and this kind of repetition. And it is musical in a lot of ways. And I'm just wondering how you view or maybe what is the intention behind the looping of The Sun and the Sea in terms of how you perform it? Well, I think it's a musical loop, technically speaking, because we actually, like, up until the very last minute, it's made in a mosaic principle, so there is, the work was made, like, just kind of creating these uh, short stories and then connecting them together at the later stage. So we could never have, like, a... So musically speaking, it's, it's never... It's not a... A to B work. It's it's more you know it's it's like not going to somewhere. It, different areas and courses are weaving together in in this one hour. 
and the looping, the durational thing was in our minds from the very beginning when we were making the work. And that's a conceptual decision in terms of why would the beach have an end? And because that's something that you come and you find when you leave it as it is. So as a, I think we wanted to achieve this eternity of it. Yes, like the idea of the sea itself is infinite. And so you do feel almost a craving once in a while to go to the ocean to experience that infinite-ness. Yeah, that's a nice comparison actually, the, the, the infinity of the, of the ocean. And, and I think we really much had this in our bodies when we were making the piece. And you know, you have these also like sometimes quite extended areas and also like repeated a few times to get into this slowing down and, and like just being in one place and noticing the small details, which I think, again, is related with music, but also with, with the scenery. Sometimes time disappears from that experience and then while it's disappearing the mind is also agitated with personal issues and that's where I think the narrative comes up and the ideas come up and the individual stories and the text come up. It's so very, very rich and interesting in that way. I wanted to also go back to this idea of what you don't like and that's this idea of composer uh -huh. <laughs> only because I'm very interested in how you work with melody and I've noticed some stylistic consistency with the melodic treatment and I know that you were originally trained on violin, you also had singing experience and then went into an artistic visual art world where you put together a lot of expertise of other forms including sculpture and so when we talk about Lina Lapilita, we talk about the artist as well, because it's everything. It's conceptualizing and integrating many aspects of artistic expertise. And yet, this musical contribution from you is also very deep-rooted in your life uh, from the earliest days. And I think the essence of my question should be, how did or how did you understand this transformation into the musician 
studying an instrument or even singing in a chorus to this idea of the creator, this idea of the creative process as a force of interest in your life that's much larger than one thing called music. And did something develop in you in some way where there was a broadening of awareness and interest? And I'm very interested in that process about how that happened. As you were speaking, I was like generating three different answers. So <laughs> it's just like it's a it's a nice introduction to to this question. I well, I think first of all, I'm I very often feel as a musician, as a performer, and I can what I struggled with in music that I had to to read the score in the way that the composer wrote. And, and I think that I always had this trouble of like not being able to interpret it well enough for someone to be satisfied. So I think that also perhaps teaches me how to maybe work with performers when I do, to kind of to work together and to, to also be in the place of the performer and really emphasize, to be empathetic with the role of a performer. So that's one thing, and then, but then perhaps I, I never, in my head, when I was a child, and when I had violin in my hands, I, and I never managed to go to like to drawing classes or anything because I had to practice and there was never time for anything else. In my head, this kind of musical practice was a fine art practice in a way. I never, and I think that something to do with me, kind of getting some texts about experimental music and like fluxus uh, events uh, when I was, I don't know, a teenager, maybe 13, 14, 16. And, you know, in the early days, I knew that that music is art. So I never looked at it from this kind of composer's point of view, but it was more than organizing sound. And I was very much caring how music looks and what it does and what it means, um, sometimes even more than how it sounds. <laughs> and I think I kind of went to develop it further, you know, in my kind of artistic practice. So it took me a while to get there and also to learn certain things that I learned, in, you know, being a classical violinist. Yeah, so it was a kind of long journey and I, you mentioned me using the vocals, so it was very much also like accidental that I had to, with working with this opera Have a Good Day, I had to teach the singers to sing the way I wanted them to sing. Because I think my score is not very elaborate, like it's very simple, but then it's working together that makes things sound as they do. Yeah, so... <laughs>
Yet it's interesting, this idea of organizing sound. And some people think that's a definition of music, as a common definition. But I can feel from you and sense, too, that the bigger picture comes in with this idea of collaboration, this idea of working with others, this idea of the concept of one plus one equals infinity, not just two. Uh, because as, as soon as you start collecting ideas and working with somebody else, something else opens up. So I, I believe and I see as a pattern of your life creatively is this power of collaboration. And I think that it's definitely shaped the works of these two operas and possibly things before that. But there's also this topic that seems to be interesting that you're attracted to I'm thinking about this idea of the common person, life experience, the persistence of being a cashier, the stories that are in the sun and the sea in terms of what people are thinking and being frustrated about, like being a workaholic. Do you think that there's this inner craving or interest to build accessibility to the common person? Because a lot of people think that fine art is uh, something that you have to be at a very high level to appreciate or to access. But in fact, your pieces are very almost warmly open to the common person. So I think this idea of audience development is probably successful. I mean, there's a line going out the block right now, and it's been going around the block for days. And people of all walks of life want to experience this. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Perhaps it's the works that I do in my personal practice are a little bit different from what I do together with Vaiva Grinita and Rugila Barjukaita, with whom we did Have a Good Day and Sun and Sea. So yeah, those two operas, they are very much related to this, as you say, common people or like, you know, small people as Jonas Makas called it or daily nothingness. <laughs> And we had this idea from the very beginning that we kind of use the term opera in a kind of almost like ironic way because we don't speak about big things in our works or operas. It's the opposite. It's a daily life that concerns us. So that's one thing. And my personal practice, as you say, it still, I think, is very much related to collaboration in some way. And I think that has a lot to do with being involved in this improvised music scene. After I graduated from violin, I moved to London where I met a lot of musicians with whom I would occasionally perform in this like free impro scene. And I think that really shaped my thinking in what is important, how do you listen, how do you share, how do you relate to the here and now, you know, all these things. And I really, really value that experience of actually, yeah, and meeting all these musicians. Um, so I think that has a big shift in my head and influenced a lot my kind of further practice. Mm-hmm.
Improvisational power is so precious to bring you into the moment, and it, it's so interesting. In terms of the creative process, musically, again, do you work with improvisational ideas in order to, do you feel like you utilize improvisational process to arrive at a compositional result? Yeah, actually, I use that a lot. And when I do have to, so I think when I work, it's often the sort of conceptual framework that I come up with, but then when it comes to actually writing the music, it's, it does start from improvisation very often. a lot of potential creators are intimidated by the idea of formality and they think much like the painter with the white canvas and they sit there and they say I'm supposed to do this in this formal way and I love this idea of giving oneself the freedom especially if they're aware of notes to play and to almost in a silly way to feel free and then see what happens and then maybe take that material that feels right and then use that as a point of departure you know rather than this stiff feeling of having to construct and write 
based on a theoretical uh, stimulus, you know, so that's very interesting. Do you think that your future direction will continue in a this large form of like the sun and the sea, big projects? Do you find yourself, especially after so much time with this piece, to maybe write smaller pieces again or solo pieces again? Yeah, yeah, I've done I've done few works after Sun and Sea already, and I'm in process of like developing few works. One of them is since I'm so obsessed with tonality, I thought I need to challenge myself and and work with tone deaf singers. So I gathered together a group of people who consider themselves not musical and to have their pitch and their hearing as a starting point instead of this kind of western harmony <laughs> so yeah so that's an on- ongoing work which during the pandemic uh, manifested as a sound installation where i also additionally worked with the free improvisers so this was this kind of combination of the choir of tone-deaf singers, the musicians, and I hopefully that's gonna be a live event sooner or later. <laughs> touch me, touch me, that sensation heals you, heals you, that frustration enters you, that Hesitation, oh how sweet is that sensation. Touch me, touch me, that sensation heals you, heals you, that frustration enters you, that hesitation, oh how sweet is that sensation. Touch me, touch me, 
that sensation heals you, heals you, that frustration enters through that hesitation. Oh, how sweet is that sensation. people are intimidated about carrying a tune and it's a very common story of somebody in a music class as a child being humiliated because they can't sing correctly and because they make mistakes and then they lose that freedom of expressivity and then how wonderful to be validated that they can actually create something honest and representative of how they feel and that you can put it into a meaningful presentation. Yeah, it, it was a very touching experience, actually. As, as you see, I, it was almost like a therapy session when we, we all gathered together and I realized, and I was doing it in Sweden, and people who came together for the auditions and then those who were finally selected, they were all between, yeah, between 40 and 70 years old. So, you know, mature people. And it really felt therapeutic, all this, you know, rehearsals and sessions, because they really felt that finally they are allowed, to, uh, officially allowed to open their mouth and sing, and no one is going to laugh at them, because that's the kind of... <laughs> it was really beautiful and touching. And especially during the pandemic, uh, I found it, the process very surprising to me. <laughs> I also wanted to find out from you this question of challenging your belief systems around topics that you choose. There are issues of age, gender. It was also published this term, otherness. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm very curious what you think of the word otherness and why do you think it relates to you? Uh, well, you know, working with the tone deaf singers is otherness. As I think um, perhaps I struggle maybe with like belonging or like following instructions or like having the common sense of certain things. So, so then I also question a lot of things that, or a lot of, yeah, a lot of things that happen around us that are the, the common sense or because perhaps in this kind of group dynamics and this group thinking that the individuality gets lost and you and the quiet voices disappear. And so I think I'm, I'm just kind of interested in discovering these small details or like sometimes intentionally looking for them, but also quite often I accidentally notice something that I feel is kind of requiring attention. So I, I do have these smaller works that look into, into these small details.
Yeah, yeah, and, and I think it comes, it seems to me that it comes back to empathy. Yeah. And feeling there are certain people that have challenges in their lives and at the same time they want to feel that their life is meaningful in some way. And your work seems to approach them and give them an opening so that they feel validated in a way, but also that there's a communion, a connection that they make around it that can be very personal and meaningful. It's wonderful what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, there's so much to talk about in bigger pieces, I'm sure we could go much, much deeper, but I want to thank you so much in this very busy schedule of yours to take this time and connect. I wanted to ask you a final question about your cultural identity, and that is, is there a dimension around being Lithuanian? Because I understand that having a cross-cultural life, not just once, but more than once for you, that you have to kind of redefine yourself in a cultural context. But I'm wondering how you feel and how you experience the threat of being Lithuanian going through all those cultural contexts. Mm. Well, again, perhaps, it when when I moved to London, this question of the you know otherness <laughs> would also be related to being Lithuanian because often people don't know where it is or so you kind of feel that you as it's a very small country so you always feel that you redefine what it is in people's heads through your own personality like you almost like form the vision of what the Lithuania is <laughs> by just being present and being who you are and doing what you do and you know and I think when I kind of try to think about my you know myself being Lithuanian then I get scared sometimes of these kind of very nationalistic ideas because I am I want to belong to the world you know not to the not to the certain nation but and I do feel that I it's kind of there <laughs> I embrace the world as much as I'm able to. But then of course there are these like small things that are inherited and you can't run away from and that are also perhaps beautiful and uniting in a way is like uh, and certain sensitivities that maybe people from other countries don't have or haven't experienced as like this I feel that as Lithuanians we are very close to the soil um, and the forest and every one of us is like a forager you know we collect mushrooms uh, pig herbs and that's like a, a very common thing and I really appreciate and also you know also being Lithuanian of my generation is means that I still remember being part of the Soviet Union so even though now we are part of European Union it's it's a Western country but I do carry this history with me, what it means to to live a different life and to be in different circumstances. So I think I'm lucky enough to carry these both experiences and being able to appreciate what we have or what we lost or what we didn't have before and what we gained. So, so perhaps that's something to do with age as well, not just with nationality. So. I'm going to try this thank you again. <laughs> uh, so 
Thank you again for coming together and sharing some deep and meaningful perspectives on yourself and music and your projects. And I hope to uh, get together again soon. Well, thank you so much, Drew, for your amazing and deep questions. I think it's, it's, a, it's not very often that you experience that kind of conversation. Thank you.